0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Small Talk with Big Chungus, perhaps our most intriguing episode yet, because we're going to delve into an India-Pakistan discussion, which will be unorthodox in almost every sense of the way, because, well, not only do we have a guest from across the border here, uh, Zia Ulthag, say hi. Hi. We are not going to talk about the typical chauvinistic things, you know, um, you send terrorists to my place, we hate you. We will beat you in the next World Cup. Instead, we're going to Rashmi talk about... Is ours. Oh, right. That sort of thing. Please don't, don't mention the K word yet. But um, <laughs> we are, uh, yeah, we also have Rosa Jangoon. That was her. So we're going to talk about more unconventional things. And we're going to compare how our respective countries function visa we us in our day-to-day lives, right? All of us being students. And today I'm lucky enough to be joined by two women. So we're going to get a perspective on that too. So before we start, since most of our audience is in India, uh, Zia Ulthag, would you like to give us a brief description about how the ruling Pakistani government functions and how Imran Khan is perceived as a prime minister by the youth and by others?
1: Okay, so uh, Imran Khan started as this really popular leader who was going to um, bring down the establishment and give all the rights to the people, to the poor, you know. And he was going to uh, ensure civilian supremacy, but what actually happened was that he, in a sense, completely reversed his position on the most basic things the moment he got in power. So, like uh, right now on Pakistani social media, the main thing that happens is that people bring up old interviews of Imran Khan where he's doing, where he's saying uh, the exact opposite of the things that he's doing right now. Right? So he's become like really really unpopular because of first of all with among like the leftist circles because he's he's made rape apologistic comments and he's allowed the business uh, class of the country to to do all sorts of stuff that like it couldn't do before for example like during the um the pandemic the profits for all the main corporations that are currently in Pakistan doubled and tripled. However, uh, for the common people, inflation increased. And so, in a sense, he he has become, in practice, he's increasingly um, anti-people. And he's also empowered the military establishment more than it was before, because Nawaz Sharif did in a way uh, assert civilian supremacy over the military establishment which is like really really influential in Pakistani politics but Imran Khan has given the army free reign like they they do whatever the fuck they want so like the general general Bajwa who's uh, the chief of army staff right now he um, had himself uh, what do you call that an extension i think he had his extension right. uh, during imran khan's regime something that like really couldn't happen um, before imran khan
0: hmm. right that i mm-hmm. mean you mentioned uh, both his populism and his uh, pro corporation stance two things that he shares uh, pretty widely with prime minister modi even modi in 2014 came in um, attacking the congress's 60 year rule right 60 year misgovernance and he was going to fix everything He was going to implement the quote-unquote Gujarat modeling at the economy on track. And uh, well, fast forward seven years later, the economy is in the toilet and he is privatizing things uh, left and right, mainly to his two uh, buddies, Ambani and Adani. So yeah, there are some pretty uh, cute differences um, between Khan and Modi.
1: They're actually weirdly similar. Imran Khan and uh, Modi definitely. Right. Yes it's like it's like when you know when you have a mirror image it's like the same
2: thing but literally inverted right? mm-hmm. I would say that you know sometimes it's like looking at something in a pond because it's slightly distorted yes. and the version is different but the essence remains the same
1: Yes 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 like there's a and, difference of content like structurally
2: yes. it's the same thing Exactly and a lot of times the disparate impact on vulnerable populations Or populations that may not benefit from, say, what is in India, the old Brahmin, upper-caste, upper-class man's rule. So, those populations are the ones. And if I may say so at this point, Imran Khan is just like every other man. He will make promises and tell you how all other men are trash. But then he turns out to be that exact trashy man himself. Hmm. Yes, exactly. Yes. And this goes for uh, other leaders of other countries as well. Where are all the big promises that were made about healthcare and governance and education? Everything is down the toilet. This The last budget gave less to healthcare than any other budget of India has. And with this, I'd actually like to ask you, Zia, how has Pakistan been handling the COVID crisis? Because whatever news reports I've read have actually been positive. America, the UK, Europe, they're all allowing flights from Pakistan right now,
1: while India is still restricted. So how is all of this going? Yes, I think actually they were not bad with like uh, handling the pandemic. Uh, we had our vaccinations uh, and many people are getting vaccinated like uh, I think 18-year-olds uh, and above are uh, getting vaccinated right now, and the thing is that uh, during like, like religious events like Eid, then the government would get a little bit expedient, right? They had mm-hmm. a lot of conservative, right-wing religious people um, in their among their voters, and so they did not want to piss these people off. And so what happened is that they got a little bit. Ex- during these events, but apart from that, like uh, for example, allowing large processions on Eid during, on the morning of Eid when people have this uh, namaz, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, but apart from that, they have been actually surprisingly good, like they have dealt with the pandemic really well.
0: The thing you said about religious I mean, it festivals,
1: could be better, it could be better,
0: but... yeah. The thing you said about religious um, festivals, that was like eerily similar because there was this function called the Kum Mela. Lacks of people caused
2: the second wave.
0: Yeah, yeah, that in part did cause the second wave in India. Day to day, right now, the BJP is often accused of wanting to turn India into a Hindu Pakistan with the um, bringing in religion into the state and like completely ruining the separation of church and state, which wasn't complete ever in India. But they are trashing Indian secularism as it was definitely. Um, So I did want to ask you, and despite all of that. Pakistan is still used every election as the typical scapegoat, right? All our troubles, especially in Kashmir, are in some way or, you know, form linked to the ISI or the Pakistani state. And then Modi constantly trumps up and says, we've sent our army there. We've done this in Pakistan, that in Pakistan. And what the ground reality is, you know, God knows. But what I wanted to ask you is, how is India perceived in Pakistan is it similarly used as a regular election scapegoat is it used by bigots to target religious minorities what is the general perception of India amongst uh, the Pakistani government and the Pakistani people
1: okay so this perception of India is basically created through like Pakistan Pakistan's reading of history Pakistan's because it's like enforced by the state but the people buy it so and it's done through your school curriculums like mm-hmm. this this whole thing called park cities is like a big thing in um like leftist discussions people always bring this up that the history taught in our um books uh, in our history books to uh, school children is basically this that the whole narrative of subcontinent history is divided into like this muslim versus hindu thing right and then on 1947 uh, this hindu turns into india right and so therefore hindu and hindu and indian are like um, equivalent words for the same thing in the pakistani imagination so for so so what this does is that if you have hindus in pakistan so they're basically like indians and if you have uh, indians outside of pakistan they're basically equal to hindu and hindu is a pagan and he and the hindu is evil and he wants to uh, they want to um, take away the muslims autonomy and they want to oppress the muslims and so uh, so it's it's through this sort of religious lens that india is seen but then again if you look at the sort of uh, like bollywood is very uh, popular in pakistan i must pakistan, say i do have
2: an appreciation for fawad <laughs> yes.
1: yes i think have, yeah i think they sent him back to pakistan at one that's point that's really
2: unfortunate for us
1: Yes, they did. So the thing is that uh, right now, I think uh, for some while now, uh, Bollywood films have been banned in cinemas, but like uh-huh. people aren't happy. So even if even if you have a bigot that hates Hindus, uh, Hindus, AKA Indians, what happens is that they sort of compartmentalize when it comes to media. So they still love their Shah Rukh Khan. They still love um, whatever big actors there are. I don't know. So yes, this sort of influence that... Indian pop culture has and Pakistan is very separate from the other more serious way in which India is viewed I think, definitely
2: well. and I think when it comes to Indian history for so the way most of us are taught at least till now before the government has had a chance to change the curriculum it's always been that the British divided it and sort of um Muhammad Ali, Jinnah and Jawaharlal Nehru were both men who could not share and they had to divide the nation and that the British were assholes. So it's less religion-centric because I think it is very important to consider that India does house a population that is 15% Muslim. They are our largest minority. So I do think as far as viewing the partition from a religious lens is concerned, it is. But um, the right wing also definitely uses Pakistan to peddle their Islamophobia. And to justify a lot of their mistakes and actions. And a lot of times, a lot of people who know that they won't even be good for like economic policy, they'll still say that they are protecting the country. But what are they really protecting the country from? And if I may mention the K word big Chungus, it is remains that the K-word is being used as a tool and a pawn. And yes, it yes, is exactly it is definitely, definitely something that we can both say for sure. It is the people who live there that are suffering. They've had no internet. There is an abject lack of human rights. Nobody who lives there lives a normal life.
0: No, uh, that, whether
2: that's, it be in that's their thing. territory or ours.
0: Sorry to interrupt, Rosa, but that just brings me to another important topic that I hadn't thought of before. What is the situation like in, um, Azad, as they call it there, uh, Azad, Kashmir and Gilgit, Baltistan? How are people treated? Is it like, do they have some sort of autonomy or local government um i mean as much as you know
1: uh, they do have yes they have a local government uh they have their own elections separate from pakistan and they, i think they have been recognized as a separate province but they're like uh they they're uh they have their own provincial autonomy so they're sort of separate from mainstream pakistani politics but the thing is that the kashmiri i don't know Gilgiti nationalism is not discouraged it's Persecuted, right? So I think there was, I think there was an incident where a journalist removed a Pakistani flag from some uh, intersection or something in Gilgit-Baltistan, and he was uh, arrested, right? So it's not exactly illegal, but um, this sort of repression still takes place. The elections are usually rigged, and uh, I think people don't usually, don't really have that much room to breathe, like politically. All mm. kinds of politics are not allowed to flourish over there, but they do have their own government and their separate elections. Mm. I think it's better than Indian Occupied Kashmir. Actually, it's, it's like Indian Occupied Kashmir is like proper, um, like they have no internet and or what and whatnot. Well, I like, would totally argue hard. that
0: Indian Kashmir is has had a co- pretty complex history, right? But uh, overall, yes, uh, the state it's in right now is pretty deplorable. There's no two ways about that. But another thing you guys were talking about uh, was um, a topic that we should now move on to is the role of religion in Pakistan. So I'll just give a little bit of a brief. Pakistan, of course, is the only country in the world to be created in the name of Islam. And since the objectives clo- uh, clause, objective, resolution of, resolution. Yeah, objective resolution of 1949, which clearly states that the state drives its power from God, uh, and not the people, right? And since Pakistan is uh-huh. an Islamic Republic. And right now, of course, we've seen the rise of Hindu nationalism, but we do need to remember that that is a recent phenomenon, right? Uh, India has always tried yes. to maintain secular roots. In fact, there was this time during the 1965 war between India and Pakistan, uh, Lal Bhadur Shastri, while uh, attending a meeting in Delhi, uh, said while, during the fighting was happening, To my right is Mir Mushtaq, who is presiding over this meeting. To my left is Frank Anthony, and I am a Hindu. This is the difference between India and Pakistan. We allow all religions to flourish. I mean, we not just um, allow secularism, but we allow it to blossom. But now, of course, the tables have turned, and many in power in India today um, almost see, you know, at least intimately see Pakistan as the sort of role model, the way religion is completely enforced and imbibed into the state. So what is the day-to-day role of religion vis-a-vis politics in Pakistan? And what are the blasphemy laws like? What is free speech like in regards to uh, religion?
1: Okay, so I think religion is basically a tool, right? It's a tool to um, pander to the masses who have been made like really religious through the schooling system. Uh, through Pakistani education. And the thing is that now religion is in, is a tool in two senses. Individuals use religion through the blasphemy laws. Um, so, so if there's this little piece of uh, information about the blasphemy laws that they initially only had a fine and not a death penalty. And at that time, I think a total of 15 or 16 uh, blasphemy cases were uh, registered in Pakistan, right? But once the death penalty was uh, introduced, I think in a space of, I don't know how many years it's been, but I think there's been over 1500 blasphemy accusations against individuals in Pakistan. So this just means that whenever a Sunni Muslim usually uh, gets into some kind of uh, conflict with a member of the uh, religious minority, what they do is a religious minority or someone that's like um unconventional like religiously right so to settle their score what they do is they just accuse them of blasphemy if they don't get a mob that kills a person at the spot uh, they can just as easily um, lodge an FIR and then what happens is that the person is persecuted so the blasphemy laws I think more people have been um, punished for blasphemy than any other crime in Pakistan because it's just that bad Um, and secondly by the state uh, religion is like a way to shut down criticism for anything so um, for example there was this uh, domestic violence bill in Pakistan recently uh, which um, seek to protect um, elderly people and women and children from domestic violence but what happened was that it was opposed and since everyone knew that you can't really have any good grounds for opposing a domestic violence bill. They brought up religion. They did not qualify uh, their claims. They just said it's un-Islamic. And that was it. The bill was not passed. So yes, religion is like a really, really highness tool in Pakistan currently. Uh, I
2: think as far as India is concerned, um, there is more of an intermingling of religion with politics. People are still persecuted on the basis of their religion. There are people who are lynched for eating beef. And there are people... But I think it in India, it's more minorities in general, whether if it is caste or gender, sexuality and religion, of course, because Dalits are lynched. It's not just people from the Muslim community. And when it comes to laws... A lot of anti-terror legislation, such as the UAPA, which has no ambit, which has a very broad ambit of arresting people, no real judicial process, very iffy bail requirements, etc., are used to sort of quell any sort of dissent. Like if you look at the arrest of Natasha Narwal or the recent deaths of Father Stan Swami, etc. So it's not just the persecution of people who are, like in the case of Pakistan, non sunni Muslims. Um, I think it's broader in India and it has more of a political element to it. As far as the judiciary is concerned, we are not in a habit of handing out many death sentences. Um, The law is more strict and I think the Indian law is more humanistic in that sense as far as the legal system is concerned. Uh, But um, it is seen that the system is so... Tired and it's so lax and it suffers from so many administrative and infrastructural delays that people are often wrongly accused and under trials in prison for a lot longer than they should be.
0: I feel like, broadly speaking, the law is more humane and more reasonable in India in the general sense, but that has changed from time to time. You know, um, in the 70s, so many people were jailed uh, under the Maintenance of Internal Security Act. And of course, there's the emergency. And today, there's UAPA. And, but all in all, in India, depending on the government, you can be completely within the law, but it'll always feel like there's someone watching over your shoulder. And uh, in Pakistan, of course, uh, the law is on the side of the state. law
1: has been suspended for most of Pakistani history. We've had martial law. I think uh, Ziaul Haq said uh, that the constitution is just a piece of paper with 10 or 12 pages that I can uh, rip apart at will. He said this and he did because he suspended the rule of the constitution for like 11 years. Hmm. And he only reinstated the constitution in a way so that once um, the law was in, like Pakistan was run by constitution once again, instead of martial law, everything that happened before the constitution was like reintroduced, would be would be legal and there would be no investigation whatsoever into whatever Zia and his government did. Hmm. So yes he Pakistan is still facing the consequences of everything that went down in Zia.
0: Yeah I mean things we don't even acknowledge in Pakistan today we just see it as that one hub of terrorism right we don't even notice its history and like we take for granted how much better we came across like no offense to Zia. Yeah himself, but I mean Pakistan had what? Three coups, three constitutions. It did not even have its first. But I will
2: say one thing about Pakistan. So till the 90s, and there is a very interesting Mint article about this. Till the 90s, Pakistan was doing a lot better than India economically.
0: No, I would argue that was social development.
1: But that was was very true. that That was your military governments. And you know, like in 1970s, Pakistan economy really took off for a bit. And what actually happened was that we had the war on terror in uh, Afghanistan, and uh, a lot of US aid was flowing in. So oh, much. The thing is it. that, yes, but along with aid from the US, yeah. we also had drugs um, uh, coming through the borders. We had uh, terrorists. We had um, these madrasas where children were radicalized being uh, opened uh, along the border towns, right, with Afghanistan. And so, like, we've paid the, the full price for that economy. Definitely. Um,
0: Moving on, let's talk about women. Uh, India is consistently ranked in many lists as one of the most, if not the most, unsafe country in the world for women. What is, how are women treated on a day-to-day basis in Pakistan? How uh, alive and kicking is the patriarchal society in Pakistan? What is it like?
1: It's, it's very alive. It's much more alive than India, I think. Because um, the Indian middle class, like correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's more liberal and like Westernized. Definitely. No, the Indian middle class class is really... really I
0: would classify the Indian middle class as purely apathetic until something uh, concerns them directly. But That
2: is true. Apathy is there until something concerns them. But if we look at sort of empirical indicators like education, access to facilities, average age of marriage, number of women who pursue employment, and even if you look at raw data such as women who have their own bank accounts, India is a lot better
1: Um, so like women are not even protected legally in Pakistan Um, like I said the domestic violence bill this same bill was proposed in 2006 it was not passed then and it has not been passed now. On the same basis that it's un-Islamic, we have to send it the Council of Islamic Ideology, which then says that, no, uh, the, the Hadith and the Quran allow men to beat their women lightly. And therefore, we have to allow that. Um, and apart from this, we have this march called the Aurat March, right? It, it occurs in March. I've said March a lot, uh, many times right now. But the Aurat March is like hated with a passion, like, by everybody, like we see people in Twitter be, being very loud, saying that okay, Aurat March is great, we love Aurat March, like Pakistani people. But then you look at the people that are actually living around you, and you see that this movement for women's rights is frowned upon. It's considered un-Islamic. It's considered vulgar. There, uh, there was uh, the slogan called "Mera Jism Meri and. Like, I don't think I've seen anyone in real life, apart from uh, the people on my eco-camber and on Twitter, no one in real life has ever said that um Raju Samiri Marzi is not a vulgar and un-Islamic slogan. So, like, the patriarchal, the patriarchy is, is rhyming in Pakistan really,
0: really well. Let's talk about the opposition in Pakistan, the opposition to Imran Khan specifically. What, what is the state of the opposition? And um, are there any real powerful leftist voices in Pakistan? Is there, any, is there any hint of secularism in Pakistan today? That's what I'm very interested to know about.
1: Okay, so the thing is that there is no mainstream party that you can actually call leftist honestly. Leftist and secular and all that, right? Hmm. Uh, there's PMLN. And there's pakistan people's party these both are like the main powerful opposition parties uh, pakistan people's party uh, is in sindh right now they have provincial government there and Sindh is like a hell hole for minorities because there's been forced conversions of minor girls and then mari- marriages to older muslim men and the PPP has let it all happen right and then apart from the PPP, we have the PMLN, um, which, is, which was actually formed by Ziaul Haq, right? Hmm. Nawaz Sharif, the guy that's been in the news a lot, he was um, sort of groomed by Ziaul Haq to come into power to head this uh, party that is, P- that is PMLN. But the thing is that PMLN later on became powerful and then they started um, challenging the military establishment and then they were removed right hmm. so you have two mainstream opposition parties and they're both uh mainly just working for their own uh sort of power and privilege and they're not leftist in any sense of the world and they're not secular and mm-hmm. then apart from these what you have is just some you know those grassroots organizations that like try to help people they're not political they're just uh like uh, having their own self-help schemes um uplifting the people in the slums working for women's empowerment like the orat march for example these are i think the only real secular leftist feminists, whatever other than them there's there's no hope for the left for secularism in pakistan
0: well, that is i mean
1: it's bleak <laughs> very bleak
0: it is bleak and it um it doesn't give me hope for India either. If this is the roadmap the ruling government wants to take us on. You no, know, but... India
1: is secular in structure, it's secular in principle, it has a secular history, right? Yeah, but it... I mean that, that counts for something.
0: Yeah, but like, I you never know. I <laughs> I do agree. Relatively, we do have a lot, right? And there is there are an array of secular parties in India, or at least people who claim to be secular. But then again, there is this lack of commitment to it, right? But yeah, I mean, in name, of course, we are secular. and
2: Zia, if I may, does Pakistan suffer from any sort of caste-based hierarchy? Or is it purely on the basis of religion and
1: class? I think there there is a sort of caste thing in Pakistan, but it's mostly like classist and uh, based on religion. So, for example... Uh, what happens is that Christians in in many Pakistani cities don't have good social mobility, like upward social mobility, and this is this is like this is very miserable. But the thing is, they end up um, working as uh, sort of like cleaners, I don't know, like domestic help at homes, that kind of thing. And we have a we have a slur for them, right? And then they are considered impure, like that's how caste works, right? They're impure, they're below us. Um, essentially right so it's like class and religion come together and turn into a caste thing but it's it's nothing um, official it's nothing with a narrative behind it the way it is in
0: India hmm. yeah I mean despite our differences our countries are linked in so many ways right culturally of course North India and Pakistan share. I mean, the very fact that we can speak in our mother tongues and understand each other says a lot. Um, I don't know if like, is yours? Oh, yeah. Um, And we're also linked in terms of our problems with the growing, um, I mean, in Pakistan, it's technically always been there, but in India, it's a, you know, growing polarization and polarization of religion and the attacks on minorities and dissenters and the silencing of, you know, any critics, So, I mean, yeah, okay, Zia, if you could speak for, like, I don't know, a minute or so about the role of the military today, like, how influential is it right now in Imran Khan's time?
1: Um, The military basically um, influences all the policy decisions, Um, like, how much budget you're gonna uh, give to the health sector, give to the health sectors, and how much budget would be uh, dedicated to the defense uh, sector, and the thing is that... um, the military also influences elections. Uh, they are gonna rig, rig the elections and uh, uh, make sure that the, that the government, the party that's pro establishment comes into part. Um, and another thing is that a really heinous thing that the military has been doing is called uh, forced disappearances. This is when people usually in Balochistan mostly in Baloch, because here, you know, you have this sort of history of uprisings. So uh, when Ebaloch usually, or maybe Patan sometimes, uh, when such a person expresses dissent of the military establishment, what actually happens is that they get, I don't know, like disappeared. And then there is come somewhere decomposing, right? Um, and the state, every single time the state looks the other way. When the families of these people come on the streets, sometimes because like people don't dare, but sometimes they come on the streets and they say that, oh, uh, my brother, my my husband or my father, mm-hmm. usually it's men. They dare and I want the state to help me find him. The state looks the other way, or or these people are silenced. They're intimidated by the military, by I and yeah, basically the military is destroying the fabric of whatever democracy is left and along with it it taking its benefits economically and then it's committing human rights abuses. So like nobody likes the
0: military. Of course you said the general perception of the military is negative but how often do you run across someone who wants to join the military and when a Pakistani wants to join the military is it to serve the nation or is it to rule the nation?
1: So the military is actually very popular in Punjab. This is the biggest province. It has the most resources and the highest population density and the highest population. So what happens is that um, the military propaganda uh, like at schools, in the media, whatever, it it's really strong in Punjab. So what happens is that your average Punjabi like loves the military and they want to die for the nation, right? Um, apart from that, the other provinces have kind of suffered um, the consequences of the military being so powerful. And especially in Balochistan, like I said, the, with the human rights abuses and things. And so what happens is that um, in the other provinces, um, military is not the military is not that popular. And um, it takes like an exceptionally cynical person to join the military to rule it because most people are just brainwashed and they want to die for the nation. But then these people um, only make up like the soldiers and the lower official ranks, the generals that you have do actually join the military to rule uh, the country. If not to rule, just to, like earn some money, because um, your military leaders tend to be quite rich for mm. some reason. And so, um, yes. So the people that actually join to rule are the ones that do end up ruling. Who. Mm. Uh, usually have better connections in the military Um, and the people that are joining to die are the brainwashed alarm and they do end up dying for the country.
0: That reminds me about the disparity of uh, military perception in the different provinces of Pakistan. Uh, What is the federal structure of Pakistan like? Uh, Is there that much unity between the different provinces. Do you all, despite your provinces, at the end of the day, do see all of like yourself as Pakistani? Um, what is, you know, patriotism and nationalism like in day-to-day life? Or does that only pop up when there's a war or a cricket match? Or what is it like?
1: The state has this rhetoric um, that the reason that Pakistan is Pakistan, it's one nation, is just because of Islam. It's just because we're Muslims that we're living together. There's no other um, narrative about like national identity. It begins and it ends with Islam. So the thing is that the provinces are like, usually apart from Punjab, Punjab is usually like just happy with whatever the state is saying, but the other provinces, there's this sort of ethno-lingual nationalism. There's Pashtun nationalism, which which is um, brutally repressed by the state. Pashtun nationalist leaders are uh, and nationalist leaders tend to be leftist for some reason, but they say that we want to study our national language, um, the Pashtuns are suffering in Pakistan, we want our rights, which has some degree of truth to it, some of it's like mythical. Um, so there's that, and the state is quite violent towards such nationalists. There's Baloch nationalism, which has kind of morphed into an uprising and that's no good for the state. And like, it's not part of the mainstream, it's against the state. Mm. And then there's Hindi nationalism, which, and then there's Muhajir nationalism, and that led to a lot of violence in Karachi because the state refuses to incorporate into the mainstream people against the state to uh, their identity. And so, yes.
0: So I think with that, we can end this episode of Small Talk with Big Chungus. So thank you, both of you, for coming. uh, And thank you to you, the listener, for, well, reaching this far, unless you skip here, in which case, go back and listen to all of it.